If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to be focusing there on verses 12 through 13 for our text. And the title of the message is uh, Pastoral Care. And I hope that it's going to be uh, instruct- instructional to all of us. And um, as, we, as we do turn there, I did want to give us a little bit of history with the letter written to the believers in Thessalonica. Uh, During Paul's second missionary journey between the year 49 and 52, um, Paul had desired to return to Asia Minor where he would visit the churches and the body of believers who would become receptive and and receive the gospel uh, there. But we're told in Acts chapter 15 through 18 that the Spirit of God prevented Paul from going there. And it was due to this prevention, a providential detour, if you will, uh, that Paul traveled through the regions, uh, ending up in Thessalonica. And so he founded a church there by the preaching of the gospel. Uh, It was received. Uh, And then Paul began his journey on from there. And it wasn't too far after that he began to receive word that there were some issues going on in the church, some persecution at the hands of unbelieving Jews who were stirring up the area against the church, and they began to suffer. And so Paul sends Timothy back to the church And he receives word following that visit, um, and he addresses three main issues in this letter and the second one as well. And the first issue is persecution and suffering. He encourages the believers through that. And the second issue is a rise of false prophets who began to take advantage of the suffering of the church and began to preach what theologians call the imminent return of Christ. And it led into all kinds of heresy, and so Paul corrects the understanding of the second coming of Christ in pretty much every chapter in 1 Thessalonians. There's an eschatological thrust either in the beginning or the end of the chapters. But then Paul also addresses Christian conduct. And this is where we're going to focus uh, in the message this morning. It is um, a study that I have been doing in my own personal time regarding Christian conduct in a fallen world. And so I hope this is going to be fruitful for you as I, I found it fruitful for myself. Amen? All right, well, you're all probably ready for me to read, so let me get to verse 12 in chapter 5, and I'll read the two verses, and then we'll pray. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. May the Lord add a blessing unto the reading of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we have this wonderful gift that You have given to us, um, the church, uh, the church that has been preserved and carried on by the, uh, the nurturing of Your Spirit, by the work of Christ, that we may be gathered together as believers and that we may sit uh, before Your Word and have it to study and that we may hear the very voice of our Good Shepherd in these words. And I pray that you would minister to us this morning as we, as we settle in and, and really receive the instructions given to us by the Apostle Paul and help us to apply these things uh, in our lives as church people. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the study of Christian conduct in a fallen world, we find this progressive topic that reveals itself from Scripture, particularly the lessons of church life. And we have several topics. I'll name just a few. 
Um, how do we view suffering and persecution? How do we as believers live as spouses? How do we raise our children? What should we think of civil authorities? What should be ultimate to me as a believer living in this fallen world? What is the truth about the church? And then finally, as we come to the topic uh, this morning, which springs out of that question, the truth about the church, how do we deal with leaders? How are we to view leaders in the church? And that's where we come to this text. It's It's not the type of pastoral care that we would normally think of where the pastor has a responsibility in the care toward the congregation. We're looking the other direction. In the message today, we're going to see uh, the congregation's responsibility in care for the pastor or the elders of the church. And I I would like you to marry two words together because I'm going to say pastor a lot, but really you could, it's elder as well. So if if I say pastor, and I'll try to double up on that so we don't forget as we go through the message. But we're going to be looking at the relationship, our relationship to our pastor. Um, And I believe this is what is clearly in view by Paul in way of his thinking and his instruction to us as the people of God. This section, some have said, and I I tend to agree with this, it is a wonderful three-course meal. You have an appetizer in the beginning uh, in this stretch of text. You have the main course, which is really the, the meat in the middle. And then you have a delightfully sweet dessert at the end. And I... I want us to see this as we look at verse 11 in chapter 5. If you back up just just one verse, and and here's really the, the appetizer or the first course, and it's this. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. But we request of you, brethren, verse 12, that you appreciate. So there's there's kind of the thing that wets your palate right there. That's the appetizer, getting you ready for the, the meat. And then here comes the main course. Continuing in verse 12, appreciate, those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. We're going to be focusing there. And then here's the dessert of the text. That you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And we'll continue on. Uh, Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, verse 14, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So there's the sweetness of the dessert that we see really in the life of the Christian who is submitted to the leadership of the church. It works itself out in a congregational responsibility. So Paul has set the vision and the instruction for the life of the church in the relationship that is found between the congregation and the pastoral work. But Paul doesn't start the chapter with this subject. He begins the chapter about the day of the Lord. Look up at verse 2. He calls us sons of light, verse 5. And this reality will demand that we do battle in a spiritual arena and that we be awake and sober. And because of the spiritual nature of the battlefield, we are to put on the armor of God in verse 8. The apostle reminds us in verses 9 and 10 that we are a people who have salvation through our Lord and Savior, and we are destined to glory where we will live together with Him. Now, these wonderful redemptive truths, they're they're works of God, and they set before us an eternal hope as new covenant people. And these works of God are, we are to encourage one another, 
and we are to build one another up. Notice what follows, which is our text. It's set in light of us having this expected hope of the return of Jesus Christ and that because we have obtained salvation from God, we then can do what Paul and Silvanus and Timothy are here requesting, that we conduct ourselves as a biblical church under the headship and the rule of Christ, and that we live together in unity and harmony, working together for the advancement of the kingdom of God. That is what the people of God are, and that is what we are to do in terms of our conduct. You see, in the time that we live right now, prior to the return of Christ, and having now received the Holy Spirit, we have been given a very strange and peculiar calling in this very specific time. This runs counterintuitive to the culture around us. It, it seems strange and mysterious to those who have yet to experience the graces of God in Christ Jesus, that we should gather together on a day of the week where we sing praises and hymns and that we fellowship and that we grow and mature and become closer to one another, closer than family. This is a bizarre thing to the world, but, but indeed this is what we participate in as biblical church people. And we want to see this. We want to, we want to see that we are a very peculiar people. We are called conquerors. We are called overcomers if you will. And we live as those who uphold the glory of Christ in His church in view of the world around us. Sometimes this creates attention. Sometimes it creates a lot more than just attention. But nonetheless, that is what we are called to do. Even now, Christ is nurturing and instructing and, and He guides and protects the people of His church. Well, you may ask, how? How can we see that Christ is doing that? How does He do these things? Well, the core to what Christ has done for the church and its good is to give men as gifts to the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Men who are then specifically equipped to do a very unique kind of work. This work is a labor of teaching and encouraging and building up of the people of God for the witness of Christ to the world, for the demonstration of the compassion in the name of Christ and for upholding the worship of God. And so you see, you and I really are witnesses to the name of God and we are to herald the glory of His Son in the world around us. But we're, we're really drawn together in the church as our way of expressing that calling and as a way of being built up and edified to go out into the world and to do that. I think of, you know, words have meaning. And I think of the Puritan writings as they, and I, we've probably said this here before, is that, you know, this is called a worship service. Do you ever think about that word service? The, the, the Puritans referred to the gathering of the saints as receiving divine service. So when you come to the gathering here of the saints and you, you partake of the, the graces of preaching and worship and singing and prayer, and you are being ministered to by the Spirit of God. He is in some way servicing you, preparing you, and fitting you to go out into the world. We cooperate in the labor alongside of the leaders of the church, seeking to maintain unity and peace, 
and see to the distribution of the graces throughout the body so that the church, as we grow together and we mature, becomes more perfect. And by perfect, we mean complete. And even that has a purpose, right? Paul says, we do this that we may prove what is your good and your acceptable and perfect will in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. So all of that is the study, the bulk of the study behind Christian conduct. Our first point here, though, is we're going to see that the care for our pastor is because of his work. And as I say pastor, I also mean elders. So there I, I'm going to throw that in there a couple times. Notice Paul requests. He petitions the church. He is relating to these believers in a very tender way, still holding an expectation of their eager response to what has been requested. Now this has all of the aspects of emotional warmth and friendly affection. Paul does not... He does not come as a commander, even though he has already established that we are on a battlefield with real dangers all around us. No, Paul's appeal is given in such a way so that we would receive and respond to what he asks. Notice the familial term used here. We ask of you, brothers. There is the relationship in mind that Paul has that stands in complete authority, not as an apostle of of King Jesus, but as a brother himself. He is reaching out to the church using language that uh, stirs an emotion of wanting to hear and to obey. And if you think about it, you and I live as kingdom uh, people under a spiritual monarchy that has afforded the blessings and the goodness of redemptive rule over us Not like worldly kings rule over uh, by their power. They lord over kingdoms. That's not how we are reigned. We are reigned by the king of love, by the king of peace, the king of patience, the king of glory. And in a very specific way, Paul is is illustrating that behavior, that thought um, of Christ. There is a kindness and a gentleness to his request that sounds to us much like the good shepherd. It echoes of the care of the Lord. And Paul comes with a brotherly voice, the voice of Christ even urging us to act in what is good for us and what will bring glory to Jesus. And this drives the focus of these dear ones, uh, the ones who have received this letter and us as well, to see the pastor's work described as those who diligently labor over you and have charge over you in the Lord and those that give you instruction. That is the work. The appeal is completely based on the work and not because of the man's personality or because of some self-proclaimed or self-exalted place above the people. It is not because we have a personal affinity toward the man. It is not because of the title on his door. It's not because we have brought a list of checkboxes and the man happens to meet every one of those checkboxes And so, therefore, uh, we can show some affection and esteem Him. No, it is because of the function that God has given Him to perform in the body, because He is laboring on various levels of our own growth and maturity in the gospel. Amen? 
He comes to the pulpit. He's hoping that we will be present so that perhaps during that one area of the message where he has perhaps thought of one of us because he knows us and we know him and he has committed prayer to that one particular part of the message. And then pastors sometimes, I hope I'm not peeling the curtain back a little bit here. Pastors sometimes very afraid to let this be known. You could talk to me later, pastor, but I, I feel... I feel like I'm in a position to kind of do that. Just let us look a little bit into what the life of the pastor, he does care particularly for individual people. And, and as he reads through the scriptures, you may come to his mind and he'll pray particularly for you and your presence is very encouraging to him. And so the pastor labors for us in the word, feeding us so that we change more and more into the image of Christ and we grow in grace. That work also carries a very heavy responsibility. In Paul's pastoral letters, he introduces the work of the office of the pastor by saying that it is a trustworthy saying. To emphasize that pastoral ministry is a vital truth in the life of the church, one that pertains to our development. It is a non-negotiable, vital means of grace given by Christ, applied by the Spirit, for our present good and our eternal benefit. In other words, Christian conduct cannot exist outside of the church. It has to be part of the church. Christians cannot maintain good Christian conduct without being submitted to God's gifts to the church, intricately connected in fellowship, encouraging one another by the gifts that God has given each one of you as we take our place in the church. That is the unity and the harmony and the encouragement that we have as being one body. And as we know and have studied from the Word of God, the pastor or elders, they will, re- they will give an account for the ministry that they give to you and I, and that carries a weighty responsibility. It's not only an account of his ministry, but it's also one of himself and his stewardship of our personal well-being. Sometimes we don't think of of those things, but the, the pastor or the position of the elder is one of very weighty responsibility. In this office and during the function of his calling, the pastor or elder can be exposed to dangers and is often the very target of Satan himself. He ex, he's exposed to temptations in the ministry of the flock and um, all kind of... Um, Ministry that he has to do, counseling to, uh, to one and to others, uh, brings into mind things that really are, are unique to the position of a pastor. Kind of like a nurse or a doctor. You know, we've had a lot in the news about some virus. I can't remember the name of it. There's been a lot in the news, and, and what we see is that if, if a doctor or a nurse is not properly uniformed, not properly outfitted, that, that they can become infected with the very thing that they seek to treat. And it's, it's very much like that of the pastor or the elder. If they're not properly prepared and built up and prayed for and loved and cared for, if they're not nourishing themselves enough in the Word of God, if, if they're not putting on the armor of God, there's a danger there as they minister and do the work of a pastor. And so we want to remember that as we pray and think for our pastors and our elders. The pastor contends not only with his own vulnerabilities, but also with his own growth as a disciple of Christ still growing in grace and battling with his own remaining sin. And quite frankly, the pastor is going to make honest mistakes 
Every pastor is going to make honest mistakes. And those mistakes, they can sometimes be serious because they have serious implications in the lives of those whom he loves and is responsible for. This applies to the way in which he handles the Word of God. You see, the the pastor is, is to handle the Word of God accurately and to lend to its application, especially to his people, and and in his own private study. He must handle the word in a way that is edifying and strengthening to his flock. And this must be done in a time when there are so many competing voices that jostle for the mind and the attention and the hearts of each one of us. As we go about our very every day, we are bombarded by voices of truth. And one out of the many voices that we deal with during the course of our lives in the week, that one in the midst is the one that God has given us to direct us and lead us. And so we want to pay attentive ear to the instruction of the pastors or the elders. We want to submit ourselves to their instruction and counsel. That's the man. Those are the men that God has given to the church. In a time when there is an ever-increasing biblical ignorance and something of a festering dislike for the things of God, the pastor is to come and he is to open the Word, being aware of Christ's presence and the day of judgment that is soon upon us. Knowing all of this, he must speak the Word of God and the presence of God to the people of God. And, And that is a weighty thing, but it is also a very good thing. Something else that we must see is that this work is not only in the Word, but it is also working with people and all of the challenges that come along with that. There are an entire spectrum of personalities found among the people of God. Paul gives us a glimpse at some of those in verse 14. Verse 14, he says, some are unruly, undisciplined in the managing of their own lives. And this is a challenging work. There are some that are unteachable, unwilling to be led and taught by the Word of God. It is interesting that Paul says here to admonish the unruly, but then in the next letter in chapter 3, he says, stay away from the unruly. Apparently, they didn't get the message that was given to them, and they didn't apply the warning. And this can be a tough burden for the men who lead the church. It is difficult to admonish and and to see that the warnings that are given have not taken root in the lives of the ones that they care for. We want to make sure that that we are aware of that as well. Some people are faint-hearted. They're easily discouraged, susceptible to quitting. Those who are weak in the faith, some are even impatient, not willing to exercise spiritual muscles of long-suffering. And the pastor is to come along and to make some kind of assessment as to where the various people of God are in their walk with Christ. And he makes an effort to come alongside of those and to feed and to encourage and give examples to them. Notice that Paul says at the end of verse 14, be patient with everyone. Nobody is exempt from being patient. We are all to be passionately concerned for our brothers and sisters, and and we are to eagerly wait for God by His Spirit to work in the lives of those who are among us in the church. It's not natural for us to have this kind of mindset. We we want to see instant change. We 
We all have expectations and we all kind of view the world around us from our own prism, if you will, of where we are and where we believe other people should be. And the real encouragement of the Word of God is that we are to wait patiently as God, by His Spirit, works in the lives of our brothers and sisters. Uh, This is is paramount to existing in unity and harmony in the church. Uh, We want to remember also that the pastor is uh, is committed and engaged as a a life occupation. He doesn't have a a time clock at 9 o'clock where he, he punches in and then does his work, and then at 5 o'clock punches out and, and goes home. That's not the life of the pastor or the elder. It is a lifelong work. The calling that has been placed upon these men is a serious and sober responsibility, and because of the work, Paul wants us to care for our pastors and our elders, to care for the man who has been entrusted by God to take up this labor. But don't get me wrong, the the labor is designed to be a means of grace to sustain us and the pastor as well. It's a dual directional work that has a way of discipling us. But if you ask any pastor, he will tell you that every message performs a work upon him and upon his own heart and mind first. All of this work brings us all to glory. When a man has been in the ministry for any length of time, it's good for us to acknowledge uh, him because God has persevered him through the many changes in people's lives. And this is something that brings a sense of honor or should bring a sense of honor to us that uh, should be given because of this work. We relate this to other areas of occupation if we think about it, right? We think of military personnel. Uh, You see the the man in, in the uniform. You think of first responders. Possibly you can think of other occupations that just seem to demand some sort of immediate recognition of honor. And it's due to the nature of that work, right? We ascribe respect and honor to those in the uniform, not because we know anything about them personally, but because they obviously work in a place that you and I receive some service from. Uh, Military personnel, doctors, policemen, Well, in some sense, that is like the pastor, but with one major difference. Our text says we are to appreciate the man. The word in the Greek literally means that we are to personally put this in front of our efforts to have gratitude and to know. We are to make ourselves familiar with him, not in a distant way like we would recognizing the military officer in the uniform and we show respect because of the distance but the recognition of the uniform, We are called to know the man personally, beyond just basic knowledge. And because of that, then we can do what follows in the text. We thank the service personnel with seriousness, but we may not personally know them. But we are to personally know the pastor. So the work itself is the reason for our care. Well, what does this involve? Our text tells us that we are to have this how-to type of knowledge for the pastor, which we've already discussed, right, the word appreciate. And if you have a King James Bible, I believe the King James renders this accurately when it says, uh, we beseech you, brethren, that you know. They use the word know, and our modern English translations uses the word appreciate or some variants thereof. But we are to know 
the pastor. Pastors are given as a type of expression of Jesus himself. They are to be respected because they come to us from the hand of our king. We are to receive them because of their work, and we are to take seriously the care of the man. Now, as we said, the knowing of the man allows us to be able to do the very next part of the text. But Paul goes on to say, appreciate, that is know, those who diligently labor among you and esteem them very highly in love. Now, this is an interesting use of English words. There are four English words used by the translators in order to express a single word used in the Greek. The entirety of the Greek means exceedingly, abundantly more, right? That seems to be a little excessive, but, but that's the expression. And this is describing how the congregation is to act toward the pastor in love. If it sounds familiar to you, it's probably because you've read that exact expression in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Four English words to translate one Greek expression or word. There is to be an appreciation and esteem that looks like excessiveness due to the work and the affection connected uh, that we have in connection. We are to establish this to the man himself. This is a love that takes initiative. It acts upon principles that are far beyond our nature. Indeed, these are divine and supernatural principles at work with regard to the congregation's relationship to the pastor. It's not limited to simple friendship or common alignment, but it goes to the very character of Christ's likeness in our dealings with the man. We see this type of thing and, and this teaching as it presents itself in the works of the writings of Christian men throughout the millennia. And if you have your bulletin, there is a quote in there, and this kind of rings true to our teaching in, in a broader sense, but, but listen to how uh, John Engel James, the uh, nonconformist writer from the 19th century who wrote a little treaty called The Duties of Church Members to Their Pastors. And this is what he says, quote, where a pastor is properly esteemed and loved will be great receiving of his opinions, care for his comfort, and a guarding of his character. Let me read that again. Where a pastor is properly esteemed and loved will be great receiving of his opinions, care for his comfort, and a guarding of his character, end quote. We are to intentionally position our hearts in such a way as to give goodwill, value, and esteem to the men because of their work. And we here have, we have not just one pastor, but we have a plurality of elders here in the church which, which care for us and are available to us, teach us and instruct us and counsel us. And so we have, we have three times the opportunity to really express this type of care and love to the men. Amen? But notice what this looks like. Uh, 13b, living in peace by the pursuit of peace. Now, there are some who will say, well, Paul has shifted his attention here from uh, pastoral direction from the congregation, and he is now speaking primarily to the congregation and how they would act with one another. And I don't think that's entirely wrong, 
Uh, we certainly see this very clearly um, in the congregational direction from verse 14, right? We urge you, brethren, which is also talking about the congregation to congregation relationship. But we mustn't dismiss the value of applying the end of verse 13 in a way from the congregation's relationship to the pastor. We are to be at peace with the pastor. We are to pursue it. We are to live by it. And that is, that is going to help um, in many ways, which we'll see here shortly. Now, we want to know that Paul is encouraging the brethren in their care for the pastor to esteem them, appreciate them, and love them, to pursue, to pursue peace with them as well. But we do this because this is a gospel relationship. It moves from a request to what is now an imperative. Paul makes a request, but now there's a command, a vital authoritative command in the text to be at peace with one another. Both leaders and people are to receive this command and to live in gospel peace. The interaction between the pastors and the people should be one that is without conflict or tension. There should always be a presumption of goodwill and the expectation that this is a relationship of gospel meaning and purpose that produces gospel peace. That means that we are to walk before one another with a clear conscience and a good conscience, that we are to be very careful not to let minor differences or offenses to fester and to begin to erode and to make a wound upon the body of Christ. We are to quickly deal in love, with what may be a misunderstanding or an offense. We are to take our relationships here as a form of stewardship before Christ and among one another. We are to recognize the weight of the responsibility that Christ has given to the pastors pastors in their stewardship of us, but also our calling to pursue peace and live in harmony with one another. You see, we must be confident that by the Spirit of Christ, We have been placed together in this very place, in this very time in which we gather. We're not only to live alive in Christ together, but we are also to live alive at various stages of sanctification and alive in Christ while dealing with our own sin. And this requires a seriousness of us all as we encourage and spur one another on to good works, as well as counsel one another, as Paul says, Uh, We do. Uh, John Owen says that as we minister one to another or counsel with one another, we are using the sin-crushing power of the Holy Spirit in our counsel with one another. That's the purpose of our fellowship. It's the purpose of our gathering. It's the purpose of our expression of eternity while we are here in order that we may live in peace with one another, advancing the kingdom through this body. Listen to how Paul delivers the analogy of the body to the letter to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 17, uh, he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints and for the work of service to build up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, 
by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of the individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. We are all joined to the head, Jesus Christ, and He gives to us as nourishment several things, but for our teaching this morning, we want to see three things just very quickly. He gives to us the Spirit, He gives to us the Word, and He gives to us those whose work it is to give us instruction in both. Christ gives His Spirit. He gives the Word, and He gives to us as gifts men whose work it is to instruct us in both of those things so that we might then fulfill our stewardship of our time, our treasure, our talent, and not only that, but the entirety of our moral behavior for the glory of Christ. We need the Word to bring light to us, and we need instruction in how we are to grow and mature and to become the people that God has called us to be. And as we think of the various reasons of why we have assembled even here today among them, no doubt is the fact that you and I desire a change. We desire some change in life. We have come to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have, we have been enlightened to the work of salvation. We know that He has purchased us by His, by his obedience. He has uh, satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf by His death. And then He has justified us by His raising from the dead. And He now gives us a hope by ascending into heaven as we expect His, imme his immediate yet distant return. I say immediate because we are closer now than when we first believed. And that is a scriptural principle. Well, then how do we apply these things? Well, let's be encouraged uh, from another text. If you would flip over to Hebrews chapter 13. How do we apply these things? How do we, if this is the truth about, about the church and about the pastors and about the elders, and if indeed this is the work we're supposed to hold before us as the thing that causes us to esteem and, and know the the men who are charged with this work, how do we apply these things? I think the writer to the, to the Hebrews gives us great insight here in verse 17 of chapter 13. Amen when you're there. Focus on the responsibility of the congregation to the pastors in this text. How do we apply this? The text says, make the pastors joyful. I know that this sounds odd, but notice that the text in Hebrews 13, 17 results in a returned expression of joy in the pastor that flows from his work. This is what it says. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with what? Joy. And not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you. A great litmus test for the spiritual well-being of ourselves can be in some way measured by the amount of joy that the pastor experiences at the prospect of being our pastor. Now, when I say this, I, 
I'm not forcing it into the text. I'm, I'm, we're clearly getting this from the text. And this is one of those areas where we might be reading in our own time, and we come upon these places, and there's many, at least for me, where I think, oh, this is probably going to hurt when I ask the Lord, how do I make my life look like this? But we must examine ourselves and our relationship to our pastors and elders in light of this very text. This is a question. Does my pastor, does my pastor, does being my pastor cause him grief? Or does it bring him joy? The writer of the Hebrews says that it is profitable for us when the relationship that we have with our pastors brings the occasion of joy. When the privilege of being our pastor is reflected on by the man, does it bring a smile to his face? That is what the text is saying. Well, what are the implications of causing grief in the work of the pastors? Well, far too often we see men burn out in the pulpit. It is not because of a lack of the Lord in any way to provide perseverance to the man, but it is often the fact that the congregation has not maybe been educated, has not trained themselves, has not searched how they are to properly care for the pastor. So let's look at some texts that speak to what we may expect in order to make our pastors happy. Turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Remember, our focus from 1 Thessalonians 5.12 and 13 is on the work. And, and these texts speak of that work. Here we get a, a little peek behind the curtain of the Apostle Paul as he's writing to the church at Philippi. Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2. Amen when you're there. Amen. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion... Listen to this pastor as he's writing back to the, to the body of believers that, has, that have been the fruit of his labor in the gospel. He says these things, and then he says... Make my joy complete. How? By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, uniting, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Here the Apostle Paul, writing to Philippi, explains what makes his joy complete. When the people of God in a local body such as this one, receiving this letter, live in peace by being united in mind, expressing the same love, tethered together by the Spirit, setting out to share the same purpose, Paul says, that makes my joy complete. When the pastors, and, and pastors can attest to this, when they hear that this family over here is, is encouraging and working alongside of this family over here, that is to them amazing. Not just gathering here, but when outside, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, when, when pastors hear that so-and-so is meeting and counseling and encouraging uh, this other member of his flock, the pastor is encouraged. It is a great encouragement to him, and it, it makes his joy to be even more full, if you will. When we do these things, which are, by the way, scriptural commands, the work of the pastor grows a few decibels on the joy meter. And sometimes at the end of worship service, you'll see the pastors 
or pastors in the back because I forgot to mention that they're standing over here or maybe they're standing over here and, and, and you'll kind of see them as they look around. What happens after, after this service? We gather together, we, we share, we, we encourage one another and we are not in a hurry to leave. And pastors, that brings them joy. If nobody's coming to talk to them, they can look out and you'll see they're really satisfied with the fact that we are existing of one mind, being of the same love and in unity, growing and encouraging one another. That brings joy to the pastor. A great example, right after service on the Lord's Day, a great example of how the Spirit is among the people without grieving and that should be demonstrated by our gathering outside of this place for the same purpose. When there is strife and caustic thinking toward one another without the speed of resolution, we can tend to grieve the Spirit and with Him and the work for the pastor goes down a few notches on the joy meter. Well, let's get another look at another place. Turn to 3 John, a little letter in the back of the book right before the book of Revelation. 3 John, there's only one chapter, so we're going to be looking at verse 4. So Paul spoke about his joy being made complete by five things. And here John gives us another peek into something peculiar about the pastor that brings him joy. Amen when you're there. 3 John 4 says, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Now, he's not speaking about his biological children there. He's talking about those whom have received the gospel, whom he has labored over as an elder or a pastor. Those are his children, that they continue walking in the truth. That will bring a pastor joy. When the pastor serves year after year in the same body and sees the continuation of his people walking in the truth, it encourages and it fills his heart with joy. Does it not, pastors? Seeing that continual walk in the faith. For instance, when one of our numbers has continued to walk before God in faith, continued in that faith all of their life, and when the end of their life comes, the pastor can, with joy, that is far more beyond expression, say that this one walked in the truth all the way into the arms of Jesus. And that brings joy to the pastor. But such is not always the case. Often we see sad circumstances of the one who was among us, who walks with us for a while, seems to grow and to mature in some way, but only at some point by some Providence departs, and then months or years down the road, it is reported that the one is no longer holding firm to the faith that they once so clearly professed. They're not walking in the same truth. They're not walking in the same love and commitment to that truth. This grieves the pastors that God has given to the church. One more. Back to 1 Thessalonians. We've made a, almost a complete journey through the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here is another occasion that pastoral joy is expressed. Verses 19 and 20. 
I wanted to bold in my notes. I wanted to bold the areas of the text that were emphasized, but the whole thing was so good, I just bolded the whole thing. It cracks me up. <clears throat> For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus, it is coming. For you are our glory and joy. Can you imagine the joy of those who have been given charge over us and have labored over us in the Lord in that day when we all get to heaven, if you will, like the hymn says? What a day of rejoicing that will be, right? When we are there in our glorified bodies, standing in the presence of Christ, what an occasion of joy it will be for those who have been our under-shepherds in this life. Looking out and, and, and recognizing perhaps some that have have been under them in their teaching and their counseling. And, and you can ask a pastor, and that, that brings great joy to the heart of the pastor. Thinking about the biblical counsel and instruction given from the pastors to us with regards to our marriages, our families, our occupations, how that, that instruction that we received has been so helpful to us so as to see Christ glorified in each area. If we do not or have not been listening to the human instrument that God has given to the church, who knows what sort of value system we would adhere to or what, side of, what kind of worldly construct that we would be following in regards to our relationships. The pastors are the instrument and they are aware of that. On, or they're aware that on that day when we are in the presence of the Lord, that we are in some way proof of God's grace through them. For Christ's glory and our eternal good, that will be a great day of happiness for the pastors. To see us walking in peace and unity, maintaining the faith, overcoming snares in this life, and seeing us come across that finish line, that brings the pastor great joy. Well, brothers and sisters, if these things are true, that make the pastor happy and bring joy to his work, then how can we cultivate that more than we do now? Well, I would like to just submit two things in conclusion. Two things. Number one, we can cultivate this joy in our pastors more by the things that we receive from the pastor. And number two, by those things that we are willing to give to the pastor. The things that we are to receive. If the pastor's work is a non-negotiable means of grace given to the church by Christ, then the people of God who are intentionally positioning themselves in a way must be receptive to that work. We must be positioning ourselves to be receptive. We are to be willing and welcoming to receive pastoral instruction. We are to be quick and to not delay and to often solicit input from Him. What we do not want to do is we do not want to turn the pastoral ministry into some sort of spiritual ambulance where he gets the call after the fact, right? And this has the idea that the pastor arrives on scene and there's a wreckage everywhere and, and all his job now is to do is to take you to the hospital. And sometimes when pastors get to this position, they, they'll often say, how did we get into this? How did we get here? <laughs> We haven't heard or haven't discussed, haven't had any counsel, but all of a sudden there's a collision and, and now we're, we're picking up the pieces. Let us be quick to seek 
his input or their input before we have a collision so that he's not having to run around and pick up all of the pieces. Seek input. Be transparent and open. Be receptive. Another thing we do not want to do in the form of pastoral counsel uh, is to turn the, counsel, the, the pastor into some sort of detective or prosecuting attorney where in the counseling session, we're not going to answer the question unless he asks it in a very specific and perfect way, right? We're, well, he didn't ask me specifically, so I'm just going to hold that information back. Don't make it so that he has to try and put all the pieces together in order to see a thing. Be forthcoming and transparent. Be trusting, not so much because of the man as much as the nature of the work that he's performing for you. Welcome his input. On the same token, we don't want to simply use the pastor as the Bible quiz respondent. We're talking about a man whose life it is to communicate the heart of Christ to us from the word of Christ for the glory of Christ. In Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 15, the Lord says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. That's far more than a Bible expert that's been given at your whim. The pastor has a, a shepherd's heart for the people whom God has given in his care. Think about this. The uniqueness of the heart of the pastor. It is designed to experience joys that baffle the culture and society around him. It is also designed to experience some of the deepest grief and pain. But it is a heart shaped for our good. Christ has not given a Bible dictionary to the church. He has given men as human instruments who, who are disciples themselves. He is dealing, this man, these elders, he is dealing with his own remaining sin. And they are far from perfect, but Christ's love is expressed through them. He is a gift that comes with inherent weaknesses and frailties, but nonetheless, he comes as a servant with genuine desire to see God's fruit bear in each one of our lives. So we must receive him and his counsel. There is another point uh, that is worthy of mentioning here. Not only does the, pastors, the pastor rightly use the word of God as it is written to apply to our lives, but he is also able to draw from the whole counsel of God to feed to you and I the blessings of what is called an informed biblical opinion. Many times we'll say quickly, well, there's no scripture that says I cannot do this, right? Or that I can't do this one thing this one way. It doesn't say it in the scriptures. Well, this is where the pastor's opinion on a matter must also be given some value and received in a way that is discernible from within the word of God. And we're not talking about mindless obedience to the word or instruction of the man. We are talking about instruction from a biblical pastoral opinion. We do have to be discerning in the matter. Now, I say this knowing that I have to give some scripture to back this up, right? But I think we can see this clearly from Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5. Paul is answering, he's dealing with the question about, uh, about whether young men should marry or not. And listen to what he says. He says, you, you can kind of make this out. It's vague, but you can kind of make it out. Paul says, I give an opinion, right? I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Now, Paul differentiates between 
giving the clear word of God and his opinion. And note that Paul's opinion ends up on the very pages of Scripture that we hold before us. So there is value, there is weight behind the informed pastoral opinion as he's drawing from a whole counsel of God to give to you and I in the form of counsel uh, some answer that we may walk away with. We have to know that when, when is the authoritative word of God and when is the opinion of the pastor or the man being given and weigh both like good Bereans. And the reason is because pastors are not infallible, right? But his duty and life are given to the study of the Scriptures and to studying people. How the Scriptures apply prayerfully to our lives. We want to get his opinion, but we do, want, we do not want to fall into the worldly notion that, that all opinions matter in the world to us, right? The pastor is an informed biblical opinion, and far too often we find where every opinion about a topic is just as equal as the other opinion in the world, and we don't want to fall into that. We want to make sure that we're maintaining the focus upon the gift that God has given to the church, and because of the work that He has done and the commitment that He has in that vocation, we want to make sure that we're aware of that. Sometimes the best counsel that we can receive from the pastor or the elders is in the form of a question. Have you prayed about this? We often come to the pastors and we, we want them to pray about a certain thing or ask their opinion about something. And, and sometimes we forget we must go to Christ first. And as we go to Christ, we are praying about the situation. Christ, Christ is even then performing a work in the men to give an answer to you so that when you do go to the pastors, the elders, they have been performed beautifully to respond. So we want to be attentive in our reception to the preaching and the counsel of the man. What about the things we give to the pastor? Well, we want to give feedback. Speak to him about the things that you are receiving, either in the way of his de- in the delivery of the Word of God on the Lord's Day or in discipleship or counseling. There's nothing more encouraging to the pastor or the elder than to have a brother and sister come up after the message and say, you know, that point in the text that you made really caused me to think about such and such. This, this gives value to the work of the pastor. He's receiving that you are being receptive and attentive to the word that he is feeding to you in such a way. Or maybe even after hearing the message, you're stirred because of a parallel area of, of the scripture you've been looking at your own study and maybe come up and, and give to him something. Hey, I, I noticed that what you preached on says this, but it also says this over here in this other place. This is amazing. Now, you can't use those examples. You're going to have to come up with your own. So those are mine. No, you, these are ways that we could give back to the pastor after the service, letting him know that we value his work. The pastor has given his life to the prayerful study of the word for us. He has invested the spiritual gifts given by Christ for the edification of the church. He is privy to some of the most tragic circumstances in the lives of his people. He's often tasked with admonishing and disciplining the unruly, and he must encourage sometimes the unencourageable. And sometimes this giving back to him is a way for us to say, we see your labor, and we know you, and we esteem you very highly in love. When he senses our patience with him, when he detects our patience with one another, 
it tells him that we have an appreciation for the Word of God and we have an appreciation for the work that the man has been tasked to do. You see, pastors are sometimes very eccentric creatures, right? They, everyone has their own unique personalities. And if you think of the work that is, that is called for a pastor, a pastor must be involved in some of the most intimate areas of others' lives. And that doesn't take just any average Joe. That, that takes particular grooming by the Spirit and preparing uh, to be in that position. And I'll, I'll be willing to say that as pastors, uh, they, they have some unique characteristics that God uses to breach areas in counseling that most people can't get through. And we want to recognize that that's okay. It's okay that pastors are uniquely fitted for the job, each one having their own differences. We need to be long-suffering and forbearing with one another. It is in this way that we show that we care for Him and each other in a very countercultural way. Then we will be showing that we desire to live at peace with one another. When we have been law and long-term relationships in the church, we can often grow closer than blood families. And so we mustn't be surprised that once in a while we're going to step on one another's toes. We're going to bump elbows in some way. And that's okay because we're called to be long in patience with one another. And, and quick to forgive one another. Now think about this, uh, Colossians. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Amen? Now let's revisit our text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12. But we request of you, brethren that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that you have given us to orient our hearts and our minds toward the instruction that we have received from your word. We ask that you would minister to us, that you would cause us to take on not only the mind of Christ in all of our relationships, but that we might behold the glory of the calling of our being biblical church people in this very age. Help us, for we by nature, do not, we do not tend to these things easily or eagerly. And so we ask by your Spirit that you would cause us to receive these instructions, that we might examine ourselves, that we might put before us the idea of what it means to esteem very highly in love those who have charge over us and give us instruction. And we ask that you would minister to us in love, that we may show love beyond understanding. Help us to be patient with one another. Help us to bring joy to the work of the pastors and the elders. Help us to see that you are at work in the hearts and the minds of each one of your people. 
and teach us to be long in patience, long in waiting for you in, in us as well to do a work. We ask these things for your glory and by your power. In Christ's name, amen.